I'm Oliver Bruce, dyslexic and dyspraxic serial entrepreneur with little more than one GCSE, but none of that matters. And that is exactly why I started this podcast. I've built multi-million pound businesses from just an idea, and I've gone into markets that I've got no right to be in. It's not always plain sailing, and what you see on social media is often a fraction of the reality. I somehow wanted to tell the candid truth the story around startup and scale-up life, and just how important mental agility and strength is in this largely idealistic and fake world. I hope you enjoy my podcast and can take some solace and some learnings from the unspoken reality and subjectivity of the term success. This is Success is in the Mind, and thank you so much for watching. Over the last six months, everybody has seen Jubel. First impressions are really key. What does it taste like? What does it look like? Do you remember it? So there was no entrepreneurial flair in the family at all, apart from the fact that you just went, I'll shovel some snow. The Vikings used to have an expression called burn your boats. So when they would invade somewhere, they would burn their boats so there was no option of running back to the shore, getting back in the boat and going back home. Yeah, I almost deleted all the files in my brain, to be honest, so. So, Jesse, thank you so much for joining me. We're here at Jubel's office in London. You were an entrepreneur from a young age. You lived in America, you shoveled snow, and you raked leaves. Tell me about how you started in business. I was probably your, your slightly stereotypical entrepreneurial kid. You were? Um, okay. Yeah, in some ways, yeah. I was always looking for an opportunity to maybe make a quick buck and I actually lived in the States for a few years growing up. So, yeah, I was in Chicago, which is very seasonal. Right. So summers would be cutting lawns, doing any sort of lawn care. Winters would be shoveling snow and in between you'd be raking leaves. So, Was yeah. that, you, you were charging people the privilege of the shoveling of the snow? Absolutely, yeah. As soon as there is a dump of snow, I'd be door-to-door -door knocking, uh, clearing driveways, took some table salt out, sprinkle it over the, the path. Um, and yeah, I remember coming home as a, a 10 year old with $100 in my pocket and yeah, just started stashing stuff away and was always looking for an opportunity to make a buck. So, so what were your parents doing then? If you went out to the US, was that, you know, what was the reason that you ended up going out there? Yeah, so my, my dad actually started as a stockbroker and he worked in the yeah. city. The Wolf, and, Wolf Street. Uh, yeah, well, rumour has it. But Penny stock. Yeah, <laughs> maybe not quite successful or, or maybe dubious, but... Yeah, he, he started there and then did quite a 180 in his career. So he actually became a vicar. Wow. So yeah, polar opposite ends of, of the career spectrum. And so we actually moved out to the States because he took a job at a church out there. Right. Um, so we were out there for five years and, and that's when I started my entrepreneurial pursuits probably. Did you enjoy being in America? I loved it. Yeah, it was great. Because the work that entrepreneurs in America are totally different to those in the UK, aren't they? It's far easier to raise money. It's more accepted when you cock it up. Was was that the kind of forming of you then? Yes, you were shoveling snow and, and, and raking leaves, I suppose. Yeah. But was that because you were around other people in America that, you know, just kind of grafted? Well, I'm, I'm sure you're a product of your own environment. And there is the, you know, there's such thing as the American dream. And people do talk about, you know, having the, the house in the suburbs with the white picket fence and it's all working your way to get there. And yeah, yeah there is a, a culture of graft and, you know, passion and, you know, real sort of entrepreneurship that I think is a bit ingrained in American culture. So I'm sure it rubbed off on me to an extent, but um, yeah, who knows to what extent. Did you, I mean, your dad being a vicar, what did your mum do? Uh, so mum was a teacher growing up. Okay. She was a French teacher. So there was no entrepreneurial flair in the family at all, apart from the fact that you just went, I'll shovel some snow. Not particularly, no, although my dad's parents were publicans. So okay. dad grew up above a pub okay. and uh, my great uncle was a head brewer, so right. Oh, yeah, so this runs in the family then. It seemed to run in the blood. Um, <laughs> and when my dad worked in the city, he actually raised money for breweries. So oh, okay, um, he helped a couple of companies like Fillers and Matthew Clark with with share assurances. So right, yeah, there was quite a thread of of drinks and beer through the family, uh, but no entrepreneurialism. <laughs> so you were the sort of first one to break the mold. And when you came over to the UK, you still in the entrepreneurial world, still trying to do stuff, make some money you know, graft or did you go to university and get your head down? Uh, still did some stuff growing up. So I I think the, the most successful thing I did was probably um, going around all the estate agents in, in my town, of which there are about eight. Um, <laughs> and I was delivering leaflets for all eight of them at the right. same time. 
So I'm not sure how that that actually worked for them. What was the reason for that? So you were you were delivering leaflets, charging them for the delivery of the leaflets. Yeah, they would give me a, a stack of a thousand and say we'll give you a hundred quid for these. Um, but I figured I'm spending all the time going to a, a house anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might as well deliver eight at once rather than just one. So <laughs> that's a bit dodgy. It just them all in the bin. It probably was. Yeah, <laughs> they're all competitors as well. But um, were they? Well, they're all estate agents, so they're all trying to get the same business. And I was, I was putting all their leaflets through the same door. But conflict of interest, though. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but that worked quite well. I'm sure, yeah, everyone who started a business did a paper round at some point as well. Oh, so. I remember when I was at university, I did, um, I did leafleting. I handed it out yeah. at nightclubs. My strategy was it was like twenty pounds for the whole evening. Yeah. Shop them in the bin, go to the pub. Jobs are good. Oh, really? So, well, you didn't actually do it. No, oh, so we didn't actually do no, it. No, I, I actually did it. I, that's more honourable than what I did. No. I got, I got that Osgood Slatter's disease in my knees because um, of all the the knee pain from walking so many miles <laughs> delivering leaflets. So. Didn't even hire a bike. No, no, I ended up walking door to door. But um, no, I mean, you don't actually learn many business skills from that. But I think that the graft and the discipline of doing a job hard yeah. and, and doing it through to the end was, was probably quite good. And 100%. Yeah, paper out's half five in the morning, so you yeah. kind of learn that discipline from an early age. 100%. And did you, how old were you at that point then? Uh, so that would have been between the ages of about 14 and 18 until I went okay. off to uni. Right, okay. Because then you went to University of Exeter and kind of did a bit of what your dad kind of did, I suppose, economics and finance, which, you know, sort of ran in the family. What was the reason for going into such an academic line yeah. of education? Oh, I'd love to meet an 18 year old who knows what they want to do 100%. when they grow up and they, <laughs> they pick their course at uni. I remember just picking a course thinking, I quite like economics as an A-level. It feels like that will probably open some doors in the future. Yeah. So why don't I do that at university? But in truth, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So picked economics and finance. To be told, it wasn't a great degree. I, I found it quite boring. Um, really? Yeah, it was, it was good if you wanted to go work for the Bank of England, but yeah. not hugely helpful if you wanted to do anything else so but you did a load of internships a load of kind of courses during your summer with pwc for one right i mean yeah why weren't you out you know earning money raking leaves for people uh i don't know maybe some of that slightly traditional conservative upbringing of yeah you want to get a degree it's a really good thing to have i was, I was probably in that mindset of right. I, I should see this through and, and actually it's probably a value i, I do hold if, if you're going to do something see it through yeah. and like try your best so I didn't actually enjoy the academic side to uni, but I thought I've signed up to this. I'm going to do it to the best of my ability and, and see it through. But yeah, tried to use every opportunity in between to see if I could get involved with um, either internships or extracurricular stuff. And there's probably quite a, a formative beer experience at uni, actually, because in my first year, I was in halls and I remember being on my laptop one day, got this email through from the careers department and it said, um, do you want to pitch the world's biggest brewer? their next big beer brand and I just read the email and it was sponsored by AB InBev right. um, and they were looking for students to pitch them a brand new concept of a beer so I phoned up my mate um, who is now head of sales at Jubel and said I've just opened this email you've got to be a team of two to four do you want to do it together mm -hmm. um, we ended up entering the competition as two freshers um, we ended up winning the UK we ended up flying over to Europe to their headquarters and we won Europe um, so that was in our first year of uni. And uh, that's kind of how the idea sort of started or the interest in this world sort of started? Probably. Completely different idea to Jubel sure. that I pitched to them and saved my best till last. But um, <laughs> Surely this isn't the last. You've got plenty more <laughs> ideas in you. Because um, yeah. you, you kind of came up with it when you were kind of travelling the world in terms of the brand that we see now. Yeah. Yeah, in a sense. Yeah, it was final year of uni. We yeah. were out skiing in, in France and the uni ski trip was always the week of the year that you just circle with the red marker. Metaphorically, <laughs> yeah. at the start of the year, it was, it was the best week. So, yeah, it's highly oversubscribed. So you you often sat there at a table with five or six people mm -hmm. getting their laptops out, just trying to get tickets. Um, and yeah, it was final year where the idea came from. We all managed to get on the trip, and and that's where it came across beer pesh. Because we'll we'll kind of go back into the idea in a minute. But you you kind of left university and went to work for Mars. You did a, you did a um a, what they call a talent acquisition sort of merger with them. What was the reason for going into Mars, but you having this idea and not following it through? Yeah, I, I got the job at Mars actually in my second year of uni for after graduation. So yeah. I'd already signed a contract to go do the grad oh, really? scheme there. Um, so I hadn't had the idea for Jubel yet. So I was pretty signed up to doing three years on this rotational grad program, right. getting exposure to different parts of the business and and hopefully just rounding my development a bit more. Um, you know, I was, I was very sort of, you know, rough, rough diamond when leaving uni, yeah. needed to shave off a lot of sharp edges and 
they were great training grounds. But yeah, I, was, I always had that entrepreneurial flair. So as soon as I got into the corporate world, I realized quite quickly I was a bit of a square peg in a round hole yeah. um, and was looking for an out uh, when I thought actually that idea from uni could be a goer. Mm-hmm. And, and it was. <laughs> well, 100% as we can see now. But whilst I suppose whilst at uni, whilst at school, whilst a kid, did you kind of struggle with anything? Were you very academic and able to follow things through as you, as you pointed out? Um, ac- academically, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to just sort of follow. Um, I never hugely enjoyed academics, but I think I saw it as a bit of a discipline task of just it's teaching you how to work hard at something. Mm-hmm. I, I genuinely can't remember much of my degree. I think I've got quite a good short term memory. Okay. Um, I worked really hard to remember as much as I could. Yeah, yeah, and then, yeah. yeah I almost deleted all the files in my brain to be honest so <laughs> we don't need them yeah i'm not sure how much thinking i did i did quite a lot of memorizing but um yeah managed to sort of get through academics okay but um yeah never hugely enjoyed it i wouldn't have ever described myself as an academic now you and me both and when you went to work for marzen and you realized that you wanted to jump ship and you kind of went actually the corporate structure is just not for me yeah how how did you get out of that world obviously you, you had this idea for jubel but what allowed you to go right let's just let's just leave mars behind go and have a punt over here and see if it works because that's a massive risk yeah didn't do it quickly actually so over the course of a couple of years i was developing the concept of jubel alongside my job at mars so i was giving up evenings and weekends to try and see whether there was legs in this idea and yeah it was following having the idea at final year university going off to mars i spent the next two years developing it and got to the point of feeling quite confident about launching it and, mm-hmm. and that's when we did because in terms of launching it and taking it to the market what did you have to kind of have in place to allow you to go actually this this brand this product is the one this is going to work this is right because it wasn't right yeah. to start with yeah so what i wanted to know was do consumers really want to drink this or is this just something that i enjoy right so from that idea initially in the alps drinking beer pesh i, I noticed two things we were a mixed group from uni. Yeah. One was everyone loves it. Yeah. Normally it was quite hard to find a product that a mixed group of guys and girls all wanted to enjoy. You'd normally come back from the bar with four or five different drinks for people. Corona have done it. Corona have done pretty well. Yeah, it's probably, um, I'd say, yeah, next to us, probably the next most inclusive beer because yeah. um, they've, they've developed a product that does appeal. I think our product appeals more, but they've developed a, a sort of brand image that is mm-hmm. also very inclusive. Um, but I noticed that was on a liquid level, it was way more inclusive. Everyone actually loved the product and wanted to drink it over and over again. Um, and the second thing was just how delicious it was. And I never had anything like it. So I think back to your question, that gave me the confidence that there is genuine consumer love for this sort of product. Mm-hmm. And over the course of those two years, I was developing a product, learning how to brew, trial testing it at dinner parties initially, then just inviting mates around yeah, and, yeah. and giving them a try then going to like small events, food and drink festivals, beer festivals, but just seeing the consumer love for the product, I thought if I commit my full time to this, I think it can work because people seem to love it. Before we get back to the podcast, I wanted to ask you, are you a high growth startup or an ambitious entrepreneur? Our headline sponsors, Capsule Cover, are the perfect insurance specialists if you are geared for high growth. Here at Pinpoint Media, we use Capsule Cover for all our insurance. So if you're an ambitious, high-growth startup, why not reach out to them via CapsuleCover.com? Coming up in this episode... Something someone told me, which is build the brand as if you're going to own it forever. That's what entrepreneurs do, right? No one takes any cash until the exit. He taught his players to never worry about the school, but focus on doing the right things and just said the school will follow. And we've really tried to deploy that in inside Jubel. That is all to come in this episode of Successes in the Mind. Because we were talking off air about how events are kind of the ways that you bring this to market because you can't enjoy a beer at an event. Now, obviously, we get into the fact that you have scaled over the last couple of years and in the last sort of six months, you guys have really taken off. But in terms of raising the money to bring it to market, that in and of itself is quite a hard thing to do, you know, especially when trying to design a product, um, you know, from scratch. How did you go about raising the cash? Did your dad kind of help you with that? No, unfortunately not. No, Vicar's salaries are not very, very Vicar's good. salaries, so, but the knowledge. He must have still had the knowledge from when he was uh, raising capital for all these for all these businesses. Yeah, dad's always a great source of advice. So I will speak to him about a lot of stuff. But um, it was actually probably my internship at PwC that was most helpful because right. um, I did M&A there. So I spent a summer 
literally churning out pitch books. Right. Um, and the whole concept of that was make someone want to invest or ultimately yeah. buy this brand. So it was a very similar skill set. I was thinking, I just want to make someone invest in Jubel. Yeah. Um, so that was that was actually a great experience to team me up to try and raise investment for Jubel. Yeah. And in terms of what you'd say to the guys listening, in terms of making people invest in a brand or a process, what do you have to have in place apart from a good idea to do that? Because it is difficult. Very difficult. I think particularly if you're trying to raise capital mm. ahead of a proper launch, so it's sort of pre-revenue. I think that's quite normal in the tech space, but in the product space, it's very difficult. Yeah. Because um, until you get it out into market, you don't know whether it's going to work or 100%. not. So I think it's a, a combination of factors. I do think it has to be a unique product proposition. I think there's a lot of me too's at the moment and people jumping onto hot spaces, but actually hot spaces become cold fairly quickly if there's just thousands of people trying to compete in it. So I think having something that's genuinely different um, it's a bit riskier, but I'd probably back something that's trying to yeah. be different rather than just trying to be a me too. Yeah. Um, I think probably having a good good team, um, people who you sort of trust and, and back to, to take it forward. And then I think just the basics of a good business strategy, thinking across the board of, you know, your sales, marketing mm -hmm. and operations as the kind of core three functions to get yeah. off the ground. Do you actually know where you're going to make your product, what your brand stands for and how you're going to take it to market and what's your route to market? I think if you've got some general concepts around that, that probably shows that you're thinking about it in the right way rather than just, I've got a good idea, no yeah. idea what to do, but let's see what happens. And how much did you go and raise then in that case? So we raised um, a low six-figure sum actually pre-launch, right. which at the time was the, the largest amount of money I'd ever seen when it landed <laughs> in the business bank account. What was it? A couple hundred thousand quid? Uh, it was it was low six figures. Right. So. Um, that's what we raised initially because I, I thought that would get us through yeah. basically launching it properly, um, working with a, a big branding agency, like knew what kind of brand we wanted. You went and worked with a branding agency? We did. Was, yeah. that a, was that a good decision? I think so. Yeah, you probably get mixed opinions on that yeah. depending on who you speak to. But yeah. I think first impressions really do count. Yeah. There's, a, there's a bit of a mindset, particularly in the tech world, probably shaped by that book, The Lean Startup, yeah. that is test and learn and fail fast and you know iterate constantly which is true to an extent but i think in product first impressions are really key yeah what does it taste like what does it look like do you remember it so we we sunk a fair bit of that initial investment into yeah. doing it right and we worked with one of the most awarded international design agencies to do that mm -hmm. which was a risk at the time but actually we won a few design effectiveness awards Have you? which measures the commercial impact of your design yeah as opposed to just does it look pretty and how many iterations since the launch in in, in 2018 has there been of the brand so of this yeah. zero really pre pre-launch um i got a mate to design a label that i could just print at home and stick yeah. on the bottles to take to some festivals right um that completely changed yeah so that was called jubel but it looked completely different right um that was a very very different sort of positioning but gave me the sort of learning to be able to then put a really good brief together for, for our design agency and then get this out there. 100%. And in terms of that low six-figure sum that you that you raised, you obviously burnt through a lump of that with the branding agency. Mm. Was was it actually enough or did you simply raise too little? Um, I think we were really, really efficient with our capital, actually. I think in most businesses, you would say you raised too little. Mm -hmm. I think we stretched it a, a heck of a long way. Really? What was the yeah. burn rate on that? How long did you did you have it for before you were out? Well, considering a large chunk went on branding, <laughs> um, which was an upfront cost to get us into market, yeah. um, we, we probably used about half to three quarters of it on the branding, and the rest of it got us through a year. Blimey. So yeah, burn rate was very, very low initially, yeah. but ruthlessly efficient on, on yeah. cash burn and, and spend basically and after the branding company after you spent you know nearly half of your cash on that what did the rest of the money get put into was it social was it product was it staff salaries offices what was that because so many people hedge on the wrong thing and put it into completely the wrong area yeah well i think there's there's kind of the, the vanity things in a startup and then the sanity thing so as a general principle try to do much more of the latter than the former yeah i think something like a really nice office that was a vanity thing for us. So, um, I basically worked in pret a for the first year. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> was that is, before the membership card? Yeah, it was, <laughs> which is a free office. So yeah, I could probably tell you the 10 best preps with good Wi-Fi's and toilets in London. <laughs> but um, it was certainly focusing on the things that 
it didn't need to be spent yeah, yeah. um and and we basically put resource into launching into the on trade hiring good people getting them knocking on doors getting yeah. us into the right sort of bars and pubs and starting to build brand momentum yeah um, so we spent on as little as we could but on the right things and actually developing and manufacturing a product from scratch comes with a huge amount of issues a huge amount of cock-ups now you must have brewed beer that was just incorrect that was rubbish that tasted bad and actually sold beer that wasn't very wasn't very good in the first place how did you kind of backtrack and maintain some kind of sanity when going through a disaster like that so i think i always had a vision of what i wanted the the product to taste like and yeah. it was delivering the refreshment of a fruit cider with the sessionability of a, a nice crisp lager yeah i found fruit ciders far too sweet yeah and i found lagers quite boring and and quite bland after a while and actually quite hard to get through mm -hmm. so knowing that the Blade middle ground of that was always where we wanted to be was the sort of north star or the compass for the product so yeah. every single product development session or iteration or taste test the north star was that we're x amount away from where i think we need to get to mm -hmm. so i knew what it wanted what i wanted it to taste like and we just didn't really stop until we got there and in terms of how you you ideated that in terms of how you actually came up with the flavor was it focus groups was it just your your, your opinion was it your team's opinion because to get the right flavor for the right people is so very difficult like what advice would you yeah. give to someone that's going into into the liquid market i suppose well i think first and foremost um it was probably quite helpful for me because i was the consumer right so if you're launching something that is um targeting a consumer that is not you i think you need to develop a product for the consumer fortunately that was me um because i was mid-20s um i was living in southwest london it was exactly the sort of person that we were trying to target. Yeah. So I was personally just de developing a product that I thought I wanted to drink yeah. and doing very, very simple taste tests, tabletop stuff. Um, the, the benefit of something like a dinner party is you just notice how many do people have. Yeah. You invite your friends around. Do they stop drinking it after a while and want to get something else out of the cupboard or do they keep going on it? That's a sort of very cheap sessionability test. Yeah. Um, so got that to a point and then you know the festivals in, and getting it out into the market teaches you whether the the wider market actually want to drink it um and really reaffirm is your target consumer connecting with your product or not yeah. and every bit of feedback that you're getting you're then developing into some form of iteration and we have done a ton of work on the product yeah every single detail from color to head retention to ph balance to abv to malt selection hot varieties fruit sourcing delved into every single bit of detail to, yeah. to develop what we see as the perfect product for that position that we wanted to go for. But where, where did you learn that, Jesse? Where did you learn to do all of that testing? Because obviously you, you, you know, you've done economics at university. You had no idea how to build or brand or how to launch a beer. Who yeah. taught you that? Uh, I think you just learn on the job. I, I think you asked the right questions. So right. probably a good benefit of, of being at Mars for a couple of years, they just said, yeah, better to ask a stupid question than stay stupid for not asking it. And they would tell you that a lot. Yeah. So got into this mindset of if I've got a question, I just need to ask it and worked with some great brewers. Mm -hmm. um, I couldn't wait to drop chemistry. So it was all sort of taking me back to GCSEs yeah. and uh, trying to remember my chemistry stuff. But and with um, your short term memory, did you forget everything? I did forget everything, <laughs> absolutely everything. So yeah, it was it was learning it from the basics, yeah. but just asking questions, you know, okay, so the color of the beer for instance this is too dark i yeah. want a really light crisp lager we want a cue refreshment with every single sensory touch point how do we change that oh that's all down to your malt selection so here's the percentage of malts at the moment we need to increase the lager malt reduce the caramel okay great well let's try that on the next brew and then you just keep asking questions you know it's this is like it's a little bit tangy around the sides of my mouth that's not technical speak but then they go oh right well the ph is a little bit low actually like if we change um, the time and the temperature and the brew process, then we might be able to tweak the pH and bring that up a little bit. So you just end up asking the sort of key questions. They translate in my plain English into some brewing technical terms. <laughs> and yeah, over the course of a couple of years, we got there. And you then had a prototype. You produced 5,000 bottles. You went to a music festival. Yeah. And that was the kind of first time you brought the brand to market, essentially. Yes, it was. That was the, the key thing that basically yeah. made me quit my job at Mars. Right, because we sold all those bottles over the weekend. The product was mega popular. Right. Um, it was quite similar to the Innocent Smoothies, apart from the bin. Yeah. I think they did a festival in London, sold them out, and then just quit their jobs basically the next week. Yeah. 
I quit my job the next week at Mars, uh, handing in my notice. Didn't know how we were going to launch the business properly, but thought there's legs in this. People mm -hmm. love the product. I need to commit my full time to it. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And in terms of then jumping ship, did you still have some sort of reservation and kind of go, Actually, it might not work? Or were you, you balls deep fully in there, absolutely believing the brand and products? Um, well, I think I, I felt I had to jump in full time. Right. I heard someone say the Vikings used to have an expression called burn your boats. Right. So when they would invade somewhere, they would burn their boats. So there was no option of running back to the shore, getting back in the boat and going back home. I've never heard that. That's cool. Yeah, I think I heard it in a book or on a podcast or something. Yeah. And I think that was probably the mindset I was in was thinking, if I'm still at Mars and still trying to develop this, I can see myself here in five years time with some golden handcuffs yeah. on and still just kind of petering around with this idea that never yeah. goes anywhere. The whole what if, yeah. Yeah, I quit my job. I moved back home. Um, and then over the summer when we started to launch, I moved into the warehouse of our factory, slept on the floor. I mean, it was it was pretty grungy, but I think it probably forced me to make the business idea work yeah. because if it didn't, then I didn't have much to show for myself. But did you at that point have the money to put into it or did you then raise the money after you left Mars? After I left Mars. After you left Mars, yeah. you raised the cash. So you literally went, okay, don't want a salary, gonna hedge it all. I'm not gonna worry about, I'm assuming, taking any money. Whatever you had in your savings account was what you were living off and what you were investing in. Yeah, so I spent eight months of unpaid work on Jubel, just laying the groundwork, trying to raise capital, yeah, yeah. continuing to test and learn, putting very small amount of my savings, which I didn't have much of, yeah. uh, into brewing a batch, selling the batch, con continually developing the business plan, yeah. then raised the money and then started paying myself um, a pretty terrible salary, which didn't really <laughs> go very far. And are you still on a terrible salary or have you... Uh... You're right now. Comparatively speaking, yes, I'll be probably <laughs> earning 10 times more at Mars, but um, I'm having a lot of fun doing this. So. That's what entrepreneurs do, right? No one takes any cash until the exit. And I'm assuming there's some sort of exit on the horizon, or is it very much just brand awareness, market share and scale for the next couple of years? I think there's two types of mindset that I try and make sure I, I stay in. One is some something someone told me, which is build the brand as if you're going to own it forever, mm -hmm. which I think shapes the sort of decisions you make. You think about long-term decisions, you don't think about short-term ones. That hugely shapes the type of brand that we're building because we are looking to build a sustainable business and mm -hmm. a sustainable brand. Um, we're not looking to just sprint for five to six years and that be it. Mm -hmm. Because I think you end up cutting corners and you end up doing things that mean you're not actually building something that could be around for a hundred years. Yeah. So that's one mindset. And I think the other, to sort of counterbalance that a bit is knowing that we've raised external finance have to be cognizant of the fact that there needs to be a return at some stage whether that is dividends a listing an exit whatever it might be um we need to kind of think about how we're delivering value back to shareholders so balancing those two things i think drives the right sort of decision making day to day 100 percent. because since since that day that you raised your initial seed fund i suppose you've raised more money since then you've done the 2.7 million quid fund uh, this year i think 2022 um that must have then been the biggest amount of money you've ever seen. That must have then propelled you into the stratosphere. And we were saying again off air that over the last six months, everybody has seen Jubel. Everybody's buying it. You no longer need to push it in bars. Mm. What have you kind of done differently and learnt over the last sort of two or three years that you've now put in place that's allowed you to have that uh, a huge growth? Yeah, I think we've we've basically focused on a strategy and one of my favorite books is this one called the score takes care of itself mm -hmm. by one of the most successful american football coaches of all time okay. and he taught his players to never worry about the score but focus on doing the right things and just said the score will follow and we've really tried to deploy that in inside jubel and just said we know the right things we need to focus on don't worry too much about the score which for us is your turnover yeah. um basically in a startup business we knew that the revenue would follow if we do the right things. Yeah. So we know for us, if we get into the right sort of on-trade accounts um, and then we build the brand equity through being at the right sort of festivals and events and delivering brand experience, and we're in the right sort of off-trade outlets in that area, the more those Venn diagrams overlap, the more mm -hmm. brand momentum we build. And we've stuck at that and focused on it for the last few years. Mm -hmm. And again, just ignored the vanity metrics. Yeah. We don't export to any countries because it's a massive waste of time. Yeah. Um, you know, people who say, oh, we're exporting to 30 countries. Uh, it sounds amazing, but it probably makes up about 2% of their revenue. And was that a cognitive decision for you to go, we're not exporting? Or was that just simply because you haven't had the time to? When, at what point in the journey did you realize that exporting for you guys wasn't worth it? 
Well, I think everyone talks about cash as being a limited resource in startups, yeah. but my personal view is time is a more limited resource than cash. And how you spend your time is vitally important. Yeah. And your time can be spread across so many different things. I would much rather build a brand that is dominating in like the initial markets that we're in. So London, Bristol, Cornwall, Scotland, yeah. then dominates in the UK before we start to think about international. Yeah. Because otherwise I just think we're spreading our time too thinly and um, I'd rather do one thing and do it well yeah. rather than try and do loads of things and do them all quite averagely. I've visited over 400 Sainsbury stores myself. How many are there in the country? Uh, about 1,400, so I've got, <laughs> yeah. I've got a few to go. Got a thousand to go. Yeah. <laughs> One of our five core values as a business is being curious, because I don't think there's the silver bullet out there that's like there is one size fits all answer to how do I grow a successful business. So speaking of time, during the pandemic, you had a lot more time than you ever had before because so much stuff stopped for mm. you guys. You quite quickly pivoted and went online though. What was the reason for that? So I, I don't think I had much more time in the pandemic actually. No, I've, I don't think I've stopped being busy for four and a bit years, but you are completely right. A lot of stuff stopped, which yeah. was the on-trade turned off like a tap. Yeah. We had our last on-trade order mid-March 2020 and me and my head of sales were basically the management team at the time and we sat down and just put a bit of a plan on a page mm -hmm. and we were trying to look at what broadly speaking what are we going to do to drive the top line what are we going to do to cut the bottom line yeah um and just trim costs and drive revenue and online was the biggest opportunity we identified yeah. we just thought retail is going to be there we were in sainsbury's we yeah. were launching in waitrose in the summer yeah um but actually if we can get online we're probably going to see people starting to buy way more because that's the only thing they can do. Um, and it, it turned out to be a good use of our time because um, we saw our digital sales actually reach a, a point that was ahead of where we were selling in the on-trade pre-pandemic, wow. which to us was pretty mad. Yeah, When people couldn't find a pint in their pub, there were an insane amount of people going to our very shoddy website and buying <laughs> beers, um, which was very encouraging for us. Because it took you two weeks to go fully e-commerce on, on, on your website. Why didn't you do that way before the pandemic? Because for me, rightly or wrongly, I would have just assumed that being online as well as on the on-trade, as well as it was a good thing to do. Yeah, I think pre-pandemic, it was probably back to that question of how do we spend our time? And we we're very much focused on building it into the right sort of accounts in the on-trade and then supporting it through distribution in the off-trade. Yeah, Digital was just a space that we didn't have time to focus on. I think the shift that the pandemic probably created was showing businesses that actually a, a more omni-channel approach yeah. is probably the way forward. And digital has remained a very strong channel for us, still being about 15% of our monthly revenue. One five. Yeah, oh, okay. um, even a couple of years on where the on-trade is back to three quarters of the business yeah. uh, and absolutely flying again, um, we're still seeing very strong digital growth, which is great. Yeah, 100%. And in terms, I suppose, of getting into the supermarkets, did that maintain and sustain during the pandemic or did that also shut down because essentially people weren't going to the shops like they used to? So we were already in Sainsbury's, which was great. Um, we would view getting a product into an existing customer almost as a new customer right. because we only had one product in pre-pandemic. Um, we finished the pandemic with three products in Sainsbury's, so we did grow with them. When you mean one product, it was different, one flavour. So we started with just the peach cans in Sainsbury's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we now have the peach and the grapefruit cans and the peach four packs. Okay. So, um, and we're in, we're in about twelve hundred stores now, and pre-pandemic we were in about six hundred. So we've right. doubled distribution, we've yeah. tripled our ranging, which is amazing. Yeah. So even though it's not the headline of we've just got a listing in yeah, yeah, you yeah. know tesco as the morrisons whatever um we've been very happy with our retail growth because we've grown within sainsbury's yeah. a huge amount yeah. um and actually over last winter we were the number one rate of sale craft single um someone said to me once jubel will never sell in the winter that will only sell in the summer like cider really um, so i opened the category report and i was very excited to see that we were the number one rate of sale through the 13 weeks of winter but it was inspired by skiing so why wouldn't it sell in the winter Great question. I think the, the fact it was fruit led probably led people to believe it might act similar to cider in the UK, which is quite summer skewed. Um, but it's a really good point. We we have ski credentials and, mm -hmm. and ski routes and we dial that up in the winter. We talk about how the brand came to be. Yeah. It's, a, it's a big tradition in the Alps. And so yeah. we started to try and bring that through in terms of brand image and how we, we market the brand. And it does connect with people. Yeah. And 
fundamentally we, we think the product's delicious so yeah. you know rain or shine i think people are still caning the stuff which is good <laughs> rightly so and actually when you started up it wasn't in cans was it it was in bottles for a couple of months but yeah what was the reason for sacking the bottles off and going for cans uh so one was a commercial decision and one was a sustainable one um the commercial decision was uh, we've done most of our learning by getting very close to the action. Right. I, I've visited over 400 Sainsbury stores myself. How many That's, are there in the country? Uh, about 1,400. So I've got, <laughs> yeah. I've got a few to go. Got a thousand to go. Yeah. <laughs> but I've spoken to a lot of GMs of, of Sainsbury's outlets and looked at handheld data for beer sales and looked at yeah. where it sells in the store. Cans were generally selling about twice as much in their small stores as um, bottles were. Yeah. And more than half our distribution was in the small stores than the big ones so that was an easy commercial decision i yeah. think it will double the rate of sale and it did yeah the sustainable decision was when we weighed up cans versus bottles excuse the pun um bottles were a lot heavier yeah and yeah. in terms of road mileage in terms of carbon emissions in terms of pallet optimization in terms of space usage in terms of recyclability council regulations yeah. overall we thought cans were a much more sustainable choice yeah more recyclable, easier to recycle and infinitely recyclable yeah. versus bottles. And so we made the, the change across the board rather yeah. than just bringing out cans as a new SKU. We, we basically made a, a hard switch and bottles were out, cans were in, uh, and we think it was a really good decision. 100%. And in terms of when you make your decisions, you seem to almost go with your your gut to a certain extent. Yes, it's based to a certain extent on data, but largely it's what you think is the right thing to do. Mm. How do you go about making a decision specifically when you're up against it? Because you haven't got a huge amount of time as you as you already alluded to. No, I think when it's your own thing, I, I think you do really have to trust your gut and listen to your gut. And probably early in, in the journey, I probably listened a little too much to certain bits of advice. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really critical that you have a humble teachable attitude and take on loads of input. Yeah. Um, but I think what you need to do is develop your own filter very, very well for what is actually going to be helpful for my business versus mm -hmm. that doesn't quite fit with my vision. That might have worked on your business, but that was a very different scenario, different time, different product. Um, and actually develop that filter to the point where you're able to weed out what is the best bits of advice to, advice to deploy yeah. in my business. Yeah. Early on, I probably listened to too much and was a bit pulled around in terms of how should you launch the brand? You know, you should be on trade only. You should never work with a retailer. If I listened to that advice, we would fail mm -hmm. um, because we launched with Sainsbury's in the first year. And I mean, that was half our business through the pandemic. Without it, we probably wouldn't be here. So, yeah, it's it's been learning to sort of listen to the gut, develop the right filter for our vision for the brand, but still remain very open to sort of loads of input from other other people. And you were, you were saying that you were given all this advice, but you didn't listen to it. Who was giving you that advice? And, and why were you talking to them in the first place if, if, for instance, you didn't necessarily trust them? Well, I think it was probably more um, choosing the bits of advice to listen to rather than thinking everything this person's saying to me, I must go do. Right. I, I was being quite forthcoming, reaching out to other people who had started businesses, trying to learn about their highs, their lows, their mistakes, their successes. Um, even some very specific situations, yeah. what did you do with this, to learn from people. Yeah. But I think when you give someone a, a slightly more open question, like what, what do you think was the most important um, decision you made in the success of your business, it's a very open question. Mm -hmm. What worked for them might not be what works for you. Someone told me once like PR was the biggest game changer for their business. We've spent a decent amount of money on PR. Yeah. I don't think it was a great growth driver for us. Yeah. On reflection, I would have much rather pumped that into events and festivals. Yeah, so sure. I think that's an example of what worked for someone else might not work for you, but yeah. listen to the advice, but just take from it what you think is actually really gonna work for your business. Because I don't think there's the silver bullet out there that's like there is one size fits all answer to how do I grow a successful business. I mean, you've got a team now that clearly, a lot of them you've already said are ex-Red Bull, so they've got a huge amount of experience in in the drinks world. You've said, you you know, people have also said that your brand is, is, is the Red Bull a bit, right? Now, in terms of the advice that they give you, do you now listen to your team? Do you still source outside opinions? How do you now take advice and action is absolutely yeah one of our five core values as a business is being curious and what that means is being curious about the market our competitors like our product our customers our suppliers asking loads of questions having a humble teachable attitude mm -hmm. to actually take on board feedback and learning from anyone so i ask the team loads of questions i always want their yeah. input i will speak to 
I mean, we don't have a very hierarchical business, but the most junior employee of, in the team, I will want to get a debrief from then on how did your activation go? What did you learn? What could we have done differently? What are you hearing from customers that you thought was yeah. really interesting? And you'll always weed out that sort of one golden nugget that will influence the strategy of the entire business. Mm -hmm. I think as soon as you stop listening to your team, it's probably game over. So yeah. yeah, I'm always ears open to what's going on. Doesn't mean I will always do what they might say or share, but it, it does mean I think we we end up being so much better as a business by yeah. always having that kind of curious attitude. 100%. And in terms of having that curious attitude, obviously, when you raised your initial seed fund, it wasn't quite enough. It was a bit tight, so to speak. You've raised nearly three million quid recently. What was the reason for raising that much money? Uh, how did you raise that money? And, and you know, why did you raise it now? I think we reached the point of being able to start scaling the brand. Right. Pre that round, I would say we were well and truly a startup. I think okay. we've probably moved a little bit to be more of a scale up. Hundred percent. If I looked at the the foundational elements of building a successful business in product, we had the highest rate of sale and repeat rate in a major national retailer. That shows the consumer wants it. So we're actually scaling something that's got quality. Mm -hmm. um, someone likened it to like a small picture and you know, if you have something with quality, when you grow it or sort of scale it, it doesn't pixelate. And I think I felt like that small thing we had was quality and there were the right foundations there to start scaling it. Mm -hmm. um, product had great traction. Uh, we had tested and learned enough in terms of team to know what kind of salespeople do we need? What kind of activation people do, do we need? Um, what geographies work well for us as a business. And we had a very clear strategy. Yeah. It just required a decent chunk of funding to start deploying it. So we raised the money, now we're into deploying the strategy and it's well and truly working. And how did you know how much money to raise? Because 2.7 million quid is, is a precise number. It could have been 3 million or 2.5, you know. Why 2.7 and how did you kind of come up with that? So I actually raised a little more than uh, what I wanted to. I thought we just needed Two million quid. Right. Uh, I say just. Yeah, it was a lot of money for us. And yeah. um, and I put a business plan together. Yeah. Uh, looked at how we're going to grow the org structure. How we're going to scale spend in certain functions like marketing. Um, how we're going to grow the brand. What geographies we're going to launch yeah. into. It was a very well thought through strategy that we put a number next to. Um, and I think the old adage sort of goes of like raise money when you don't need it. And yeah. I thought actually. This round is oversubscribed. People are really keen to get involved in the action. Yeah. There's a few investors here who have a huge amount of value and experience they could add. I'd probably rather just give ourselves a little bit of buffer rather than turning them away, mm -hmm. hence raising 2.7. Fine. And, and in terms of future raises, I'm assuming there's some more on the horizon that you'll want to go for to maybe take it internationally? Yeah, well, our cash burn would be pretty bad if we were already going back for more, having raised six months ago. But, 100%. but in yeah. terms of future, future planning, three years, let's say, is there a future to raise more money or are you hoping that this is it and you'll be able to scale it based on the 2.7? I'm actually hoping that will be it. That was the business plan I put together was how do we get us through to profitability here? Okay. Um, that is the game plan. It's always caveated with you never know what growth will demand. Mm -hmm. um, working capital requirements go up significantly and quite savagely yeah, yeah. when growth starts to accelerate massively, which is what we're experiencing at the moment. The amount of our cash that is tied up in stock just to service our demand yeah is way higher than what I thought it would be because growth is ahead of where I thought it would be. So does that scare you? Not particularly because you can work on things like working capital cycles, you yeah. can work with your suppliers, you can work with your customers, um, you can use stuff like invoice factoring if you must and if you need to. Yeah. So the encouraging thing is it's all that the problem or the pain point is being driven by growth. Yeah. Um, I'd be pretty scared if the product wasn't moving yeah. and we just raised a big chunk of funding and it wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. We know where to deploy the capital and where we are deploying it is working and it's driving growth. So that encourages me more than scares me, I'd say. And what, what's it like? Because I've never been, I've never run a business where you haven't made profit because it's a service set, for instance, it's people's time. Now, when you're running a business and you're scaling it three, four, five, six years, or in your case, four, and you haven't made a profit, that must be a weird feeling because so many businesses out there are set up to make profit. When yeah. will you turn a profit and what do you do if you don't? So profit is definitely the sanity metric in business um, and, and revenue is, is more the vanity one, I'd say. Yeah, 100%. Um, we are prioritizing revenue over profit for the time being. We see revenue as the goal um, and cash as the fuel. So if revenue is sort of where we're trying to get to, we're trying to measure and manage our cash usage and our fuel usage at a sort of pace where it's going to get us to our goal. Yeah. So we have very clear revenue goals. 
And we will lose a considered amount of money, which we're happy to lose along that pathway to get to where we want to get to. We're producing sort of product that no one else is producing. There's a window of opportunity for us to do a, a bit of a grab of the market. Yeah. Um, and then we want to hold on to that space. So we are putting our foot pretty firmly down on the yeah. accelerator. So our, our fuel usage might be slightly higher than if we're sort of in cruise control. But yeah. um, but that's within a considered strategy of where we want to get our business to. So uh, that's why we are losing a bit of money, but we're losing how much we want to lose, which is the key thing. If we're losing an unforeseen amount of money, I'll be really worried. Yeah, I think our commercial discipline is quite strong. So yeah. we've actually delivered our annual business plans within a few percent of the revenue and the loss figure that we said we'd do at the start of the year wow. every year wow. which is quite unusual for a startup business because you sort of never know what's going to happen but yeah. we've managed to actually deliver what we said we would and your investors are happy that you're just you know going through making a loss gaining market share that's cool that's perfectly fine with them yeah that is the strategy yeah. that we raise money behind so they were fully bought into that i mean we're not burning that much cash we are losing some money but if we wanted to turn a profit we just put hiring plans on hold and turn a profit next month. So, oh, so it's as close as that is really, really close to actually making a profit then. Yeah, it's because we're over investing into overheads. We know the lag time on hiring someone like a salesperson. So it wouldn't be like straight away you make a profit. But if you put the hiring plans on pause, the hires you've just made will start to basically break even in three months. And then we would start to be profitable. But we've gone from nine to 20 people in the last year. So we are investing into overheads. We are investing into marketing. Those both do come at a cost. But it's always those things that then drive the big jumps in revenue, mm-hmm. which is what we are seeing. Yeah. Um, so that's why we believe it works as a formula, but we're yeah. controlling the losses to a pretty considered amount. 100%. And in terms of marketing, I mean, I came across it because I was being served your adverts consistently over the last six months. So it's evidently working in that sense. But something that you mentioned to me earlier, um, was that you still run the social page yourself, or at least some of your guys run it together. But then you speak about how you simply haven't got time. How do you manage your day? How do you manage your week? And what does that kind of look like? Yeah, so in that specific example, I think we're just a little under-resourced at the moment in our marketing team. So that for me is speaking to our head of marketing. We're overwhelmed. We've got too much to do. Where can I help? And that's an easy thing to just go, well, it's quicker for you to do it because you've done it for years Mm -hmm. um, rather than like try and get someone else on it who's going to need a lot of help and leaning in. Yeah. Um, so that's just trying to help a function where they might be a bit under-resourced. Mm-hmm. Uh, how I split my time is, is trying to keep that sort of, I guess, the focus on, I, I actually have a note on my laptop of what are my top three priorities. And I do just flick it open at the start of every week and go, oh, yes, those are the three things that I need to focus on more than the other stuff this week. Okay. Um, is that a weekly thing or an annual thing, i.e. the three targets? or I would say they probably, um, I, I do things, so probably sequentially rather than in parallel. So once the number one thing has been done, what's number four on the list can sort of come into the top three. And that probably goes on a two to three month cycle. Um, So at one particular point in time, recruitment might be top of my list because I don't want to work with agencies because they're so expensive um, and they probably won't deliver on the brief. So I'm going to get a LinkedIn premium you know, subscription, and I'm going to do it myself, and yeah. we're going to fill pipelines with talent, and we're going to fill those roles very quickly. Yeah. So that'll be like a focus period of a couple of months, and then I'll probably move on to something else once we feel like we've we've kind of ticked that box a bit. So yeah. things do go in fits and spurts, but I'll try and always remain focused on those top three things, and try and remain um, helpful to kind of our key three functions, which are sales, marketing, and then ops and finance as a third to make sure I'm close enough to the detail and supporting those guys where they need it. And I mean, in terms of work-life balance, are you working literally 18 hours a day on the weekends as well? Or are you one of those entrepreneurs that has the ability to go, I need a day off, I'm going to take a day off? Yeah, I think rest's really important. I think we're you know, built for rest. Um, and it's important for your longer-term productivity yeah. to make sure you're building it in. Uh, you know, you look at athletes, like the most important thing yeah, they yeah. talk about is rest and recovery and sleep. So um, <laughs> if it works for them, it's probably working it's in the entrepreneurial us, world. Yeah. But no, I, I try and remain very balanced. So um, I, I start my day pretty early. I try and finish at a good time because um, yeah, I got married last year. Like, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Relationship with my wife is very important. So yeah. making sure we have evenings together. Uh, we both serve at our local church. So two nights a week, we have commitments there. Um, and then Sundays, I'll generally try and take off slightly out of principle but also um just because i think rest is really important and just having at least one day a week where you're not thinking about work is, mm-hmm. is really important so no i think working really hard but making sure you're keeping a balance is, is pretty critical to keep those energy levels up 
100%. And I mean, in terms of keeping that balance, keeping that momentum up for the business and yourself included, three, five years time, what does what does Jubel look like in that sense? Are you going to have taken over the UK's market share? We jolly well hope so. Yeah, the vision was always create a new category, which sure. Um, I'm sure quite a lot of startups have that on a deck initially. But we were very focused on that. No one else was doing what we were doing. We'd seen how transformative fruit had been within both cider, gin, vodka, everything that was growing was a fruit led variant. Yeah. There was nothing in beer. So we were pretty bullish about the idea of fruit can drive a significant amount of growth in beer because it makes the category way more accessible to more yeah. consumers. And we're pioneering that. So our vision is you walk into a shop in three to five years time and there is a whole bay dedicated to fruit lager of which we are the pioneer. We're the biggest brand, but there's probably four or five others. Yeah. In the same way that fruit cider started in traditional cider, mm -hmm. but within 15 years has broken out, formed a new category and now a million more people drink yeah. fruit cider than apple cider. Yeah, so, it's very true. Copper burger, yeah. all that, you know, absolutely. They have good market share there. And in terms, I suppose, prior to getting to that point in three to five years time, how can we help you get to that point? How can the listeners, how can the viewers buy your products online in shops, in pubs, where can they go? Yeah, it'd be great if people want to give it a try. Um, we're available in Sainsbury's, Waitrose, Whole Foods. We're launching on Ocado uh, this month, I believe. Um, and you can get it on our website, you can get it on Amazon. And we're available in over a thousand pubs, bars, restaurants as well. So if you live in London, Edinburgh, Bristol, Cornwall, you're more likely to find an outlet nearby because that's where our salespeople are. Um, but it'd be amazing if people want to go and have a try of the product. Uh, and if they like it, tell a mate or two, it'd be brilliant. And they can get it online. And I'm acutely aware of your time. Look at that. Quarter past 10. You've got a meeting. Jesse, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not listen to a few more and click subscribe? This podcast was produced by Pinpoint Media and I'm Oliver Bruce. I hope we can speak again soon. Take care.